The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Today, my guests are filmmakers Ramon Charles and Elise Artiaga, here to talk about their 30-minute narrative film, Sirens. Next, you'll hear my interview with the Honorable Congressman Frank Pallone from New Jersey, so stay tuned. Ramon Charles is a filmmaker and a student at the California State University, Long Beach. He is also the writer, producer, and director of the 30-minute narrative film, Sirens, which tells the story of Benjamin Brown, a black LAPD SWAT officer who rediscovers his moral compass during the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Elise Artiaga is a producer and director trained with the Fellows Program at the Ghetto Film School. Elise has directed various short films in collaboration with the FX Networks, the Huntington Museum, and Netflix. Elise is also the lead producer on Sirens, along with Ramon Charles. Good morning, uh, Ramon and Elise, uh, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well and uh, happy to have you on the show. You guys are um, involved with a really exciting project, uh, your film, Sirens, which is a, a short documentary film, uh, although it's, I feel like it's more than that. You are both uh, producers and uh, Ramon, you're also a director and a writer. And uh, Elise, you sort of have the lead in the producing part. And it's a film that's sort of inspired, you know, by the 1992 uh, riots following the Rodney King trial. But it's so much more than that. It comes all the way sort of full circle, if you will, to uh, the George Floyd uh, uprising and such. And everything in between that we know of to be our our world of politics and social justice and uh, human rights. So whichever one of you wants to start, um, why this project? Yeah, so um, I'll go on ahead and just explain how this project came to be. So about a year ago, um, you know, I was kind of chatting up with one of my friends. Uh, his name is Anthony. Um, his character is involved in this story. And he was basically telling me his life uh, in South Central and Compton growing up. And so throughout, you know, these various events that happened to him, very tragic as well, there was one that stood out to me. And there was, um, you know, this, this story that he told me that happened with his uh, parents, his grandmother, and his two um, younger brothers. And so one day before school, um, you know, they had to like prepare all the time and, and kind of rehearse uh, sometimes like, you know, scenarios as if like SWAT were to kick their door open. Right. And this is something that happened uh, quite often in uh, Compton and South Central. And so one day uh, before going to school, that's exactly what happened. You know, SWAT kicked down his door and, you know, his brothers and himself 
you know, had to reenact those scenarios that they prepared uh, with, with their grandmother. And, you know, since then, I've always questioned, you know, how does the opposing force feel in this situation? The cop, you know, what's his background? What's his story? So I really question that. And so, you know, about a year later, you know, one day just a story hit that what if uh, this was a black cop and this was someone against his own people. And uh, this was also uh, a time of the 1992 Los Angeles riots, a very pivotal moment in our society, especially in Los Angeles, very historic. And so I thought, okay, well, what if I create a world that Anthony's character and his situations and his scenarios exist, but I tell the story of that opposing force. And that's exactly what Sirens does. And that's how that story came to be. And so is Anthony in your film, I know there's a, there's a bit of a narration about uh, Benjamin Brown. Is, has the name changed from Anthony to Benjamin Brown? So Benjamin Brown is the opposing force. He oh, I got you. Oh, that's right. Okay, I got you. Okay. And uh, Anthony, um, he's the kid that's first introduced in the beginning. And then we go through various flashbacks um, and, you know, moments in this life uh, where, you know, Benjamin was, you know, educated or surrounded by the world that he lives in. And we see him learn, gather his morals as, you know, he paves his way through this story. And then at, at the end of it, you know, um, we're left with an answer for Anthony. I gotcha. Okay. I think I understand this. So Elise, I'll ask you, um, and you can explain sort of like uh, pick up where Ramon left off is Ramon talked about the opposing force, the other side of a story, if you will, the other side of a, a protagonist. Uh, although I think the way you guys are doing the film and correct me if I'm wrong is it's hard to determine who's a protagonist and who's an antagonist, but how was your decision uh, made to have the opposing character or person, I should say, and show what they have to go through in their background and, and why they are where they are. Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately what gravitated me towards the story is the complexity of it all. I think right now in present time, and you can often see it in history, especially in LA's history, there's a black and white substance to these events that happen. And we all recognize that there is so much neutrality and so much complexity with, amongst all of us. And I think our obligation as storytellers and as producers for this project is to come with the empathetic, empathetic source of storytelling. And um, Ramon approached me with this story. And given the context of it and given you know, the social context that we're in right now, I recognize that it is something that I think is difficult for a lot of people to recognize as a recurring aspect in not only LA history, but in, you know, in American history. So when we come from a place of wanting to tell an opposition or an opposing story, it's not necessarily um, that this opposing force carries negative energy, garners, you know, is a bad person per se. Um, Ramon obviously wanted to switch this story and highlight aspects of somebody and their life and their relationship with their father and how that impacts their occupation and how that impacts their relationship to their community. And Ramon being someone, and like myself, who were born and raised in LA, our community is everything. It is a source of creativity and a 
you know, melting pot of storytellers that kind of come from everywhere. So being able to tell a story of all of our communities being impacted by such a historical event that happened here um, not too long, but kind of long ago, just kind of makes us all reflect on where we are now. And personally, as a storyteller, I have that in mind every time I make something that I want to be able to reflect um, a hint of fantasy, a hint of truth, and that ultimately that reflection. Wow, thank you. That was very dense. I appreciate it. For our listeners, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jarami, and I am in the studio with the filmmakers, Ramon Charles and Elise Artiaga, talking about their short documentary film, Sirens. So let's go back to um, some of the technical things. Your, the length of your film, what, what will it end up being? Although that sometimes changes after editing and all of that, but what, what's your projected length? Yeah, so uh, the projected length is estimated around 35 minutes, um, but it's not a documentary, it's a short narrative. Um, right. And um, our promotional video is told as like a documentary slash, um, you know, promo. But uh, yeah, we're aiming for 35 minutes. And of course, you know, uh, that could be short and it could be tightened based around, you know, the editor and what we're working with in post. Um, but we're projected 35 minutes. Now, the George Floyd uprising, uh, which happened not after uh, just the George Floyd uh, police brutality, but others, there were multiple uh, in that year, and there was a, a great movement that Black Lives Matter. What do you think is the relationship? I mean, sometimes it's obvious, but um, sometimes it's not, between what happened in 92 and where we are now, and then finally, do you see change since then? I'll, I'll first speak on this, and I'll let Elise talk. Um, so, you know, this reoccurring uh, event and situations um, is that in LA, it's happened every 27 to 28 years. It's, uh, you know, it happened in 1965 with the watch riots, um, 1992, and uh, 2020. And so, you know, um, with these just, you know, these reoccurring events and stuff throughout these reoccurring events, there has been some change, um, you know, and I think with media, has been a great push to it because as you know, uh, what, you know, created that outbreak with the Rodney uh, King riots um, was, you know, it being the first televised police brutality, you know, on camera, you know, publicized in front of everyone in America. Right. And it shocked the nation. And I think as we're growing, you know, as, uh, you know, into new technolo technological advances and, you know, uh, with cell phones now, being accessible through Instagram, YouTube, and media just being so accessible now. I feel like definitely we've been able to share a lot of the stuff happening and ongoing, and there has been change through that. But um, as far as, you know, just the numbers going down and, you know, the actions of police brutality, it, it's ongoing. You know, it could be happening as, you know, as we speak. It could be you know, it probably happened like last week or so, but it's not relevant until someone posts about it and then other people follow. And so, um, you know, adding on to that, what really helped, you know, push this story and why I, I really want to make it is, you know, other than really just bringing it to attention, I don't want another victim to be heard like, oh, you know, da da da, 
was killed by a cop. And that's why this is relevant. I want to do it through the one thing I know I could do best. And that's by making a film of it. And yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Elise, what's your sort of blue sky wish list in terms of intended audience, in terms of your objective for the film and how it's, uh, uh, you know, how it serves that purpose? Yeah, so I think given um, what Ramon just said, ultimately this is something that reaches national audiences. We want to be able to engage everyone, but we recognize that as filmmakers and as filmmakers, particularly in LA, that our culture here is different than anywhere else in the world, anywhere else in this country. So not only do we want to appeal, obviously, to a larger national basis, um, you know, with social media, I think that can happen and it, and it will, because like Ramon just said, we're all very interconnected thanks to social media. But this is ultimately just an homage and a love letter to L.A. It's where we're from. And it's I like that. Something that it's something that we've all been afflicted by in some way, shape or form, and our families have been impacted by. And this is just for us to kind of come together and reach an empathetic place um, in our communities, because I think there's a lot of non-empathetic media and I don't know, discourse going around. And I think that's something that we could use a lot more of. So this film, at least for me, the blue sky is that we're approaching this with as much intention as possible. We want to be intentional with our visual language, um, our dialogue, our characters, and ultimately craft somebody that's more than just two-dimensional on your screen, but is someone that you know, someone that lives down the street from you, someone that you've encountered. Um, and we want that throughout all of our characters, not just our protagonist. Gotcha. Well said. For our listeners, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jarami. And I am in the studio with the filmmakers, Ramon Charles and Elise Artiaga, talking about their short documentary film, Sirens. So where are you at the film right now? So right now, you know, we have all our key stakeholders onboarded, um, you know, DP, producers, uh, production designer, editor. Um, and so now we're looking for crowdfunding to make this happen. And um, so now we launched a crowdfunding campaign on Seed and Spark. So far, we've raised just over eight thousand dollars, and um, you know we're looking to uh, you know help push that up, and so we can make this happen. Oh, fantastic! Uh, what uh, what's the platform for the crowdfunding? Yes, uh, Seed and Spark. Okay. Do you, is there is there a URL or something you can? Yeah. Uh, provide? Um, so other than it being on the homepage of Seed and Spark, uh, you could look up www.seedandspark.com slash fun slash sirens hashtag story. Okay, great. And for those listening, sirens is spelled S-I-G-H-R-E-N-S, just F-Y-I. Um, so I'm sure if you go to the website and you put in uh, sirens spelled that way, uh, that too will come up, which is again, S-I-G-H-R-E-N-S. I heard a rumor there's a celebrity tie-in. Is that something you can talk about now? We definitely can't uh, disclose uh, that, but um, there are actually multiple. Um, well, I, I can name one, maybe. Yeah, I'll name one. So an executive producer on board, his name's Lalo Alcaraz. Um, you know, huge in the Chicano community, uh, a very talented artist, and um, also a very talented filmmaker. And... Uh, 
yeah, he's involved. Fantastic. Those open doors, definitely. What question should I have asked that I didn't about the film? Or what would you like to share, Elise? That's a good question. I think one of the important aspects of this that many people um, don't necessarily disclose, I think us as filmmakers don't necessarily disclose, is that we're also students. We are very young filmmakers ranging, at least in the directing seat and the producing seat, in our early 20s. And I think for a lot of people, that's a daunting task to do. And I think for Ramon, that's a very ambitious task to do. But that's why I was attracted to this project is because I myself am somebody who wants to continuously challenge and bring my art to the highest degree I can. And with that kind of ambitious filmmaking and with such a exceptional team behind it, there's no reason like I couldn't say no. Um, because I just knew that no matter what this project was going to get done and what they needed from, you know, from me is obviously some intentional filmmaking and my artist expertise per se. So um, I think that is a selling point to a certain extent that we are people who are young and are hungry and we want to be able to make stories that are truthful. And um, with, you know, the entertainment industry kind of honing in to diversity and inclusion, this is a story that is so inclusive to LA and impacts a lot of various communities that live in LA, all these subcultures. So we want to reflect that, you know, diversity that we see in our everyday lives into our crew and into our cast. And that's, I think, a big point in terms of storytelling that it's not necessarily like, oh, look at us, we're diverse. This is the, this is the base point. This is a surface level that we have to reflect our community as we are here to service it and ultimately create a beautiful portrait of it. Yeah, and I see, I see this being something that a lot of different organizations, advocacy organizations, human rights organizations, be very interested because there's so much of an educational angle uh, to it, as well as a documenting history, as well as uh, a heartwarming uh, narrative. Uh, you know, it sort of encompasses a lot of things. And, uh, and it's LA. I, I, love, I love films about LA, just, you know, just that take place in LA. The city I grew up in too. Before we go, uh, maybe Ramon, you can tell us like uh, if if people want to get in touch with the two of you, aside from crowdfunding, is there a website, uh, a web address you can give us? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the things that you could do is uh, within our Seed and Spark. Um, if you go down to our team members, you'll find Elise. You'll find Brandon James, who's also the co-writer producer of this project as well, and you'll find myself. You'll also find our emails. You can reach out to us personally. And uh, yeah. Right. Real quick, if you're also interested in kind of following along with the production as it goes from pre-production to post, we're also available on socials, both Twitter and Instagram at Honeymoon Productions. That's H-U-N-N-Y, Moon Productions. Fantastic. So Honeymoon, but honey with a U, Mm -hmm. uh, Productions. Uh, Fantastic. Anything you guys want to add? I mean, I just appreciate you, you know, giving us this platform and being able to take us on um, this morning and giving us an opportunity to kind of speak about a project that's near and dear to Ramon's heart and something that I'm really excited to be a part of. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. I can't wait to see it. And I know we have a very active and activist audience. So I know they're interested and they'll be following you. Until then, thank you both. 
Appreciate you, you being on the show this morning. Well, that was my interview with filmmakers Ramon Charles and Elise Artiaga. Ramon Charles is a filmmaker and a student at the California State University, Long Beach. He is also the writer, producer, and director of the 30-minute narrative film, Sirens, which tells the story of Benjamin Brown, a black LAPD SWAT officer who rediscovers his moral compass during the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Elise Artiaga is a producer and director trained with the Fellows Program at the Ghetto Film School. Elise has directed various short films in collaboration with the FX Networks, the Huntington Museum, and Netflix. Elise is also the lead producer on Sirens, along with Ramon Charles.
The Blunt Post with Vic. Congressman Frank Pallone, a progressive caucus member, was sworn in for his 17th full term in the U.S. House of Representatives on January 3, 2021. Since 1988, Congressman Pallone has represented New Jersey's 6th Congressional District. Congressman Pallone serves as a leader on critical environmental issues, women's right to make her own health care decisions. He led the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the ongoing fight for equal representation and equality for all Americans. He stood up to his own party in opposing the Defense of Marriage Act and continues to be a leader in the fight for true equality for LGBTQ Americans. He serves as a co-chair of the Congressional Caucus on Armenian Issues. In 2002, he was awarded the Mekhitar Ghosh Medal by the President of Armenia. Congressman Pallone. Hi, Vic. How are you? I am well. Yourself? Good, good. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. (laughs) With your schedule and everything on your plate, I'm very grateful. Oh, you're welcome. Is your you are you Armenian? Yeah, I am. My last name was butchered through multiple generations. No, I figured it was probably ended with an I am, but now the way it is now, it sounds like it's Italian. But no, you look I, know, Ar- I get that sometimes. But you look Armenian. <laughs> yes, I'm all Armenian. They they do doubt me though when I when I go to Armenia at the airport. I always get that sort of that sort of uh, suspicious look at first. <laughs> and I'm definitely Armenian. I tell them, look at my nose. Does it look like, you know, it's not Armenian? Well, Italians and Armenians look a little like, but I, you, you definitely look Armenian. <laughs> true, true. Well, first, I just want to thank you. I've been, uh, I've been a super fan of yours for many years. Um, you have truly been a, a crusader for, I don't want to say Armenian rights because uh, it's not all about us. And we are in America and it's about everyone's human rights, um, but for sure, um, for a tiny, <laughs> tiny nation and tiny uh, diaspora, uh, we couldn't have uh, had anyone to fight for us. Um, and what's happened with between genocide recognition that you managed to get to the finish line in 2019. And, uh, and now we've put something else on your plate. So I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're welcome. Thank you. So, Congressman, um, I just want to ask you first just a general question, your perspective on uh, what happened in 2020 with the attack on Artsakh. Uh, Of course, I know, you know, from your your statements and such, but maybe in hindsight, what's your perspective on what happened? Well, I think that... um, you know, you always have to take these dictators' uh, word when they say they're going to attack you, or they're going—they say they're going to uh, resolve things through military means. You know, I think a lot of people say, "Well, if, um, do they really mean that?" But I usually take them on their word when they say they're going to do things bad. And uh, you know, basically all along, Aliyev has been saying that he intends to resolve the Artsakh. Uh, situation through military means and that's what he did um i think that he had um you know two advantages maybe that we didn't realize one was that he would have direct support from uh, turkey you know with its generals and its uh, and its men and its uh, equipment 
and that also um, they were able uh, over the last 10 or 20 years to upgrade their military uh, so that they had um, new technological means of, content, of conducting the war, particularly the drones that um, were very high tech and that uh, Armenia did not have or didn't have access to. Um, so to me, those were the most uh, important aspects of this that were maybe not anticipated. I'm sure some anticipated them, but I didn't. And I think a lot of Armenians didn't anticipate it. Um, and I also think that um, there was this notion that somehow Russia was going to prevent uh, Aliyev from going to war, which they did not do. Um, thankfully, they did come in at the end, and, and, and I guess from what we could see, save Artsakh from being totally overrun. But uh, you know, because of the fact that now um, the Armenian Artsakh are separated, other than through the Lachin Carter, which is controlled by Russia. Um, it is much harder to defend uh, Artsakh uh, militarily. And, um, you know, we, we just have to uh, accept the fact that this occurred and see what we can do to protect Artsakh, keep it Armenian uh, through diplomatic means. Um, and, um, you know, do whatever we can to, 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 to secure it for the future whether that be military, diplomatic, or whatever. But the military options are more limited now because of the separation of the land area. Correct. Um, I want to ask you about the diplomatic means, but uh, a question about your, you called on Congress to investigate Azerbaijan for war crimes. Where do you think that's going to, uh, going to go, considering Azerbaijan's uh, very powerful lobby and uh, its uh, resources? Uh, well, you know, oil and gas for uh, so many Western powers. Well, I wouldn't worry so much. I, I'm not to say to reject it completely, but I do think that this war has landed most of the West, uh, you know, clearly on the side of Armenia, right? In other words, if you ask um, congressmen, your typical congressman, uh, even if they're not part of the Armenia caucus, which so many of us are, uh, whether they be Democrat or Republican, they realize that Azerbaijan was the aggressor. They realize that Turkey was behind it. They don't see Azerbaijan or Turkey as allies, even though anymore, even though uh, Turkey is still part of NATO. I think most members of Congress would see Turkey increasingly as a threat and an enemy rather than an ally, not only because of what they've done in um, in Artsakh, but also what they've done elsewhere uh, in the region and in other, par in other parts of the Mideast and, and uh, the Mediterranean. Um, so um, I wouldn't worry so much that, you know, Western allies see, uh, you know, uh, Azerbaijan's gas or natural resources as a factor here. I think the, the concern is that um, Armenia and Artsakh are, you know, more dependent on Russia for their security than ever. And, and we wish that that wasn't the case. I mean, we want to step up and have the United States more involved in, in the security of Armenia, Artsakh, more link our trade and our economy, um, and also be very supportive of these democracies, you know, because, I mean, Armenia and Artsakh at, at this point are of the former Soviet republics or, or autonomous regions or probably the, you know, one of the most democratic 
uh, there is, and that's important to us. Um, so, uh, you know, our immediate caucus and myself have really been trying to step up and say, look, the U.S. needs to get more involved in the Minsk process uh, in, in relations and trade with Armenia and, and Artsakh. Even though we don't recognize Artsakh as an independent country, we recognize that it's Armenian and that its future must remain Armenian. I like that. I like that you, you kind of gave me a soundbite for the end of the film, which I want to end it on a hopeful note when you said that, um, uh, you know, after this war, after this attack, uh, most people or most uh, Western powers see Azerbaijan and Turkey as the aggressor because sometimes even me as a journalist who sort of lives this 24-7 almost, uh, just reading constantly, uh, I feel like some organizations and bodies and agencies seem a little tone deaf. So one doesn't really know, but you are from inside out, you see this, so it's really good to hear. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie. You're listening to my interview with the Honorable Congressman Frank Pallone. In terms of diplomacy, and you just mentioned the OSCE's Minsk group, I was just reading a few days ago from the Russian delegation that they're having a challenge going to Artsakh in order to sort of you know, reignite this uh, process in peaceful means. And I thought if, if Russia and the U.S. and France are having a hard time getting in Artsakh for, you know, what is a, a diplomatic uh, process, what, what chance do we have? Well, I mean, the, you, I mean, the Minsk group is being held up, you know, primarily right now by Azerbaijan, right? In other words, they don't want to participate. And um, part of that is to say that, you know, if the Minsk group co-chairs want to visit the region, they have to go through Baku and not through the Lachin corridor, which is absurd. Right. Um, but I mean, it's, it's an overall policy of, of Aliyev saying, you know, we don't really want the Minsk group involved in deciding the fate of Artsakh, and we have to insist on that. Um, but there, you know, Aliyev is, is increasingly not interested as I, have said in a diplomatic uh, uh, settlement, if you know, I don't know, maybe I use the word settlement. Um, I mean, that's clear. He continues to say that, um, you know, Artsakh is, belongs to Azerbaijan and we will determine its fate. And uh, right now, the only, you know, the only uh, practical uh, way that that's being prevented is by the presence of the Russian troops which is important, but I hate to say, I hate to see Russia play an increasingly uh, significant role because I worry about how much they can be dependent on to defend Armenia and Artsakh. But right now we have to recognize that they're the only, they're the only uh, game in town without them. Uh, you know, uh, Aliyev might just, you know, continue the war in Artsakh. Yeah, I mean, um... Uh, Russia proved to be less reliable than imagined in the in the beginning, and it at some point we didn't know if it was playing all three sides. Uh, but as you said, unfortunately, it got to a point where no one else stepped in, and it was either the Russians or they would uh, basically do complete ethnic cleansing of Artsakh and what was left, including Stepanakert. 
where where does it go from here if if Aliyev is not letting Minsk Group will go into Artsakh uh, to investigate and to restart the process? Is is the U.S. Uh, able to in, you know inject or insert some power? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that um, we should insist on the Minsk Group because that's you know it was set up for that purpose, right? But um, you know, I, there's a lot of things going on that I think could lead to Azerbaijan ultimately, or Aliyev ultimately, uh, you know, participating again in the Minsk group process. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, the, uh, the Armenian government is, you know, meeting with the Russians. Uh, um, they're also meeting with uh, Turkey, right? I mean, I, I think that any effort to reach out uh, through diplomatic means with Turkey, with Russia, with Azerbaijan, I mean, all these things are useful. And we want to get away from this idea that uh, everything's going to be resolved militarily, right? Uh, the threat not only to Artsakh, but to Armenia itself in the south and the border areas where they've been, you know, clashing. Um, and so my hope is that as all these diplomatic uh, maneuvers continue, that ultimately we can get back to the Minsk group uh, and that would involve the United States and France as well as Russia. Um, but it's important for the United States to continue to say, look, we're here, we want to use the Minsk group, we're going to be involved in Armenia, we're going to give humanitarian assistance to Armenia, to Artsakh, we, we want the prisoners of war returned. All these things, many of which have been initiated by, you know, here in Washington by the Armenia caucus, are important to make the point that this needs to be resolved diplomatically. But keeping in mind all the time that we take the position that Artsakh has and the people there have a right to self-determination and they have a right to determine their own fate as Armenians. I mean, we're never going to get away from that. That's, that's really important. That's at the essence of what we're talking about. Um, in terms of the, you know, I'll just speak for myself. I was very excited <laughs> for a for administration change when President Biden came to power. And uh, of course, um, I won't even get into it, but I mean, I personally think that uh, President Trump being in the White House uh, enabled, especially Erdogan, uh, but also Aliyev to do what they did. So I was very hopeful when President Biden came and of course he recognized genocide after 106 years, but then a week later, Section 907 was lifted, uh, and this, um, you know, this massive military aid was given to Azerbaijan. But moving away from that, because I've heard all the sort of reasoning behind it and all of that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie. You're listening to my interview with the Honorable Congressman Frank Pallone. What, with, with, People like yourself and other uh, members of Congress, Senator uh, Menendez and Congressman Schiff and Congresswoman Speer and, and such, and many others, what is happening, or I should say, what isn't happening? Is there like a blockade to the State Department or the White House? Well, I think that the, that the you know, before the November 2020 uh, war began, those of us within the Armenian caucus, the co-chairs, uh, myself and others, were pushing the State Department um, 
not to provide this $100 million in aid to Azerbaijan. As soon as we found out that it had been authorized, we still were trying to prevent it from actually being sent, right? And the, um, you know, the, the, the State Department takes this position, which I reject, that this was not military assistance, because we had always had an agreement that any military assistance, be it training or whatever, had to be in a parity basis between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And they took a position, this was for customs, inspection, drug interdiction from the borders in Iran through the Caspian Sea. To me, that was all nonsense. But I think they really believed it. I mean, I, I, you know, Vic, it, it, you know, maybe they're just naive. I don't know what the word is. But they really believe that this had nothing to do with the war. Now, I do think that some of that could have been used in the war, right? But beyond that, it sent a very bad signal that we were going to send all this assistance to uh, Azerbaijan and we weren't doing anything for Armenia, right? So, um, you know, part of what we're doing now too, I don't know if this answers your question, is trying to convince the State Department that there shouldn't be any more military assistance or anything like it, you know, to Azerbaijan. You know, that's actually an amendment that we have to the Foreign Operations Appropriations Committee pass the House, hopefully we get it, uh, you know, an agreement with the Senate, I guess, to the president. Um, also that, um, um, you know, that the prisoners of war, we have sections in the, uh, in the defense authorization bill that already passed and was signed into law that says that the prisoners of war have to be returned. So we're trying, I hate to say we're educating the State Department, but in a fashion it is, right? It's like, you know, you can't make process. Yeah, you can't make these mistakes. You can't buy into this notion that you're going to help Azerbaijan and it's going to be used for peaceful means. That's just not true, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to make those arguments now than it was before the war because they hadn't taken military action. I think a lot of people in the State Department never believed it was going to happen. But, um, but um, and we also have um, this report that was, uh, that was put in the... Um, uh, defense authorization bill that, that I had the language that, you know, looks at, at human rights abuses uh, in, in Azerbaijan. So we're trying to, and, you know, ultimately, I would even advocate sanctions against Azerbaijan or Turkey itself, but that's hard to get, you know. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want to give the impression that the Biden administration was purposely doing anything uh, that was harmful. And this stuff actually began before Biden during the Trump administration. I think you're right when you say, though, that um, the problem with Trump and the difference between Trump and Biden, one of the differences, you know, Trump, you know, wasn't a big advocate for, for democracy, right? I mean, I got to be honest, right? So he cozied up to Putin, he cozied up to, to Erdogan because I think he liked their, their, their kind of strong men dictatorial attitude, you know? And the Biden administration clearly understands that democracy in uh, Armenia, in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, and certainly in Artsakh as well, um, has, has, is, is something precious and needs to be encouraged. And is it a sign of, you know, their, the Armenians' ties to the West and to the United States? I mean, I never meet with, the ambassador uh, from Armenia, or today we actually met with the, uh, the National Assembly president, the equivalent of the speaker. And when we met with the prime minister, 
anytime I was in, uh, uh, I mean, after the Velvet Revolution, all they do is talk about democracy and how important it is and the importance of a parliament. You know, this is, uh, and that has been conveyed. And I think the Biden administration is very much aware of that's why we need to step up and be more supportive of our media, in part because of the democratic values that they share in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, which I think were always there, but manifested themselves after the Velvet Revolution in a very obvious way and continue to. Absolutely. I was going to say that because, you know, I'm, you know, I don't hold back. And the fact is that, that we had, there were a lot of uh, issues with democracy in Armenia from 91 to 2018. And it is a young, uh, you know, the democracy part is about three, four years old. And, and it could revert back to having oligarchs control parts of government. So it is really important. And I think uh, Armenia is put in a really fragile position um, where it doesn't have a lot of natural resources to offer. It doesn't have a lot of, uh, um, you know, neighbors that are, are friendly and Russia is not very reliable. Uh, thank goodness for, you know, the diaspora and uh, people like you, Congressman, who, uh, who advocate for human rights. I don't want to take too much of your time. I have uh, just, uh, well, my last question would be on a positive note, going forward and being in the solution, right? So people, you know, some people are pessimistic or not hopeful. Um, what tangible and, uh, you know, just realistic, hopeful uh, things do you have to, to say or see? Or, of course, you don't have a, a you know, a crystal ball, but do you see coming up that we can sort of uh, be hopeful about, if you will? Well, I really want to stress to the Armenian Americans and you know, the diaspora, I guess we call them, how important it is to continue to be involved, right? To continue to talk to your members of Congress and your senators about Armenian issues, to tell them to you know, join the Armenian caucus, to continue to be aggressive about promoting Armenia, because that's important. I mean, you know, a lot of what we do in the Armenian caucus only happens because of the diaspora, you know, contacting members. And, um, you know, I, I guess I could say two things. I mean, you know, I, when I came here to Congress over 30 years ago, uh, and if you had told me that we were gonna see the day when the Armenian genocide uh, resolution passed in the House and the Senate and was, and was openly, uh, uh, you know, stated by an American president, I would have said, I don't know if I'm ever gonna see that day. We saw that. Day. And a lot of it was because of the continued act, activism of the Armenian diaspora. And the other thing I would say is, look, we've all studied Armenian history. Armenians have been around for, I would say at least, well, probably about 3,000 years that we can figure that we can go back to, you know, the ancient civilizations. And, um, and they're here to stay. In other words, you know, a lot of people come and go on. There's certainly been ups and downs, periods when there was no Armenia, at least no independent Armenia. So, you know, take a solace in the fact that, um, that um, we can accomplish things and we're gonna keep Armenia strong and we're gonna, you know, have a, make sure that our sock stays Armenian. But a lot of that, at least 
from a U.S. point of view is dependent on continued activism by the diaspora. So please, uh, people like yourselves, Vic, that's why I asked you if you were Armenian, although I could just look at you and tell. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they play an important role in all this and influence what we do in Congress. So thanks again. No, thank you, uh, Congressman. Absolutely. It's faith without works is dead. You can't have blind, blind faith, and we certainly can't just expect our members of Congress to just go like that and things happen. We've, we've got to do the work, too. Congressman uh, Pallone, thank you so much. I truly, truly appreciate it. Hope to meet you someday. And, Absolutely. Uh, and hope to maybe watch the finished film with you. Maybe not. Well, but either way, you'll get to see it. All right. Thanks a lot, Vic. Take care. Thank you. You too. Well, that was my interview with uh, Congressman Frank Pallone from New Jersey, uh, an interview I'd been <laughs> hoping and wishing for for a long time. So it was truly an honor. I'm very grateful. Uh, thank you, Congressman, for your time, uh, for doing the show, as well as uh, doing the interview for my upcoming documentary film, Motherland. Uh, much, much, much appreciated. <laughs> Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.